Do you love birds? So does National Geographic. Now you can get your hands on the most up-to-date and comprehensive book of North American birds with National Geographic's Complete Birds of North America. This extensive reference is completely updated and includes maps, beautiful photographs, and more than 1,000 species. It's a must-have for all birders, and it really is the biggest and best bird book ever with 752 pages. It covers every bird one might see in the continental United States and Canada. Buy it for yourself or a fellow bird lover today. Available wherever books are sold. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. I don't know about you, but I've been watching a lot of basketball these days. It's March Madness. Sweet 16 is set. And even if you are not a fan, I do think it's worthwhile to take stock of the state of bird mascots in the collegiate basketball world. And it was quite a good weekend for bird mascots, despite generally being a a down year for them in the broad tournament-wide sense. Uh, Usually we see a lot of eagles in the field. This year there was only one, the Golden Eagles of Marquette, who who lost in the first round. And even separating out raptor body parts didn't work, as the Hawkeyes of Iowa failed to make the second round, despite being dark horses, felled by the spiders of Richmond and some arthropod-on-bird action. It was also not a great year for the best of the collegiate bird mascots, at least in terms of accuracy. The Blue Jays of Creighton University, whose logo is actually a really nice likeness of the bird itself. So it was somewhat ironic that they were eliminated by the Jayhawks of Kansas, whose mascot is a fake bird who wears shoes. Come on. How does a bird even put on shoes? Where do the shoes go? Do they go all the way up to the heel? How do they how do they get the toes in there? It's, it's a mess. At least it didn't have teeth, though, like the Louisville Cardinal, an abomination of nature that thankfully did not even make the field. Nope, the big surprise, both from a sporting and ornithological perspective, came from tiny St. Peter's University from Jersey City, New Jersey, home to so many birds, World Series of Birding, it makes sense. They are the peacocks, well, the men's teams are the peacocks, the women's are the peahens, who only in their fourth tournament appearance ever ran off to the Sweet 16, knocked off tournament favorites, Kentucky, Wildcats, not a bird. They are the only Peacocks in NCAA athletics, which is nice, I guess, but what of the logo? I can hear you asking. And I'm happy to say, like, it's a reasonably accurate, though sort of stylized, not unexpected, representation of a Peacock with a, you know, blue head, the little the little weird crest. Uh, I went back and looked at some older versions of the logo to see if this is always been the case. And there's a version from the mid 90s that is even more accurate to the point of being a little bit grotesque. It's actually too accurate. It's got like caruncles on it and and weird and a weird eye. I'll be honest, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I do I do have an issue with the fact that the peacocks and the peahens use the same logo when they should be different. Indian peafowl famously show a ton of sexual dimorphism like most Galliforms. I mean, why even call your women's team the Peahens if you're going to use the Peacock logo and more? I found a photo of the current women's basketball team and all their jerseys say Peacocks. And I'd argue that that is the right, that is the right thing to do. But what, what are we even doing here, folks? They should all be Peafowl, like the official bird name, and just sort of be done with it. This is, by all accounts, a technical Peafowl. And since we're in the double bonus, that's two Peafowl shots. Anyway, uh, go St. Peter's. Go Peafowl. They play Purdue on Friday. Purdue, 
a, like a train or something. Not a bird. Not even an animal. Garbage. On the show this week, many ranchers and farmers are turning to a new program that allows them to use their land for nature tourism and encourages best management practices for birds and wildlife. It's called Land Trust. And Forrest Rowland joins me to talk about how it's a win-win-win opportunity for outdoor recreationists, landowners, and birds alike. All that after this week's Redbirds. This is your Redbird Focus for the middle of March 2022. Things are looking very good in the Pacific Northwest these days, highlighted by a red-flanked blue tail at a private residence in King County, Washington. This is the state's third record of this small East Asian flycatcher chat, though it's not related to either of those families as they exist in the Americas. Most records of this highly migratory East Asian songbird come from Alaska, where it is annual, but there are a small handful of records from California through British Columbia, and it's always an exciting bird when it does occur. Most spring records represent overshoots, and that means you know they would occur in late May and June, but this bird is so early in the spring, it is almost certainly an individual that overwintered in the Americas and is following that urge to move north. A quick look at records in their normal range in Eastern Asia shows that they are currently being seen at about the same latitude on the other side of the Pacific as this one was seen in the Americas. That wasn't the only cool record in the region. A whooper swan in Vancouver, British Columbia comes right on the heels of a similar record across the border in Washington. This, however, would be a first provincial record for BC. A whooper swan is commonly kept in captivity in the Americas. A lot of records of this species have kind of been questioned by Providence, but I have to think that a bird that shows up in the place and at the time of year that you'd expect a natural vagrant to occur is most likely a natural vagrant. That's all I have this week. If you want a more complete roundup, check out the Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org rba, or to get those rarities as soon as they happen, join our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. If you know the birding industry at all, you probably know Forrest Rowland, a longtime tour leader for our friends at Rock Jumper. Um, I know you're listed as focusing on the Americas, but you've been pretty much everywhere. Uh, I think it's safe to say. But in addition to advocating for ecotourism around the world, he also advocates for it closer to home. He's involved with a project called Land Trust, which connects landowners and outdoor recreationists in some pretty interesting ways. He's he's with me to talk about that and whatever else we get to. Uh, hi, Forrest. Good to see you again. Hi, Nate. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be here. Yeah, good yeah, to man. see you too, buddy. Good to see you. Yeah, so l- let's start with Land Trust. Um, what is it? How did it start? What problems are out there that it's it's trying to solve? Well, um, okay, so it's it's just about a couple years old, and it started with a fellow who was uh, would probably say he wasn't really doing uh, you know God's work as he put it, but but he, uh, he was actually working with social media and um, and doing a lot of he was basically an online seller in a sense for um for a couple different companies including airbnb and such but he had always been an outdoor recreationist um since he was a boy i mean he'd been going out with his family nick to had been going out with his family ever since he was a a young kid and so um so yeah when he finally relocated to his dream spot here in, in montana and settled down and stuff um thought that it would be good to address one of the big impending issues in the West, especially with COVID, which has spread up this process, as we all know, there's been this <laughs> sort of mass no, no exodus doubt. from cities yeah, to, yeah. Um, to more rural areas. And that's had a few different effects. Um, some of them, I think, are you know positive in, in some economic ways. But a big thing that 
everyone's noticed out in the rural west of late is um, quickly increasing land prices for one mm, yeah. housing prices um, and uh, and sort of the threat of encroachment and the division of larger tracts of wild areas. Um, so, of course, you know, there's lots of public lands and, and we've got great national parks and in a lot of areas, the national forests are just doing a really great job providing public access and we've got wildlife refuges and such. But that's not the majority share of land in the West. Um, you do have some, you know, really neat uh, exceptions like Nevada, which has a lot of BLM and Wyoming and such. But um, it's a, a lot of, you know, what people would like to, to access would be on private lands. Right. And so sort of the, the idea was um, based around this relatively new concept of vertical growth on private lands mm-hmm. to keep private lands in private hands in the sense yeah. of um, how do you keep large areas of wilderness on private lands uh, protected? Yeah, that's going to be a tough problem because the the motivations are to sell that to outside property owners or to industry or whatever. They've, they've got to be huge. Absolutely correct. And yeah. lately, we've seen this this huge, um, you know, with certain certain economic factors like inflation, we've seen this huge push of uh, properties getting picked up, mm-hmm. uh, large tracks, small tracks, any tract available getting picked up by uh, by large funds from from other areas and and a lot of that's been going towards housing subdivisions and stuff yeah. because not just is the money coming but uh, but the people are also coming too you know they want to have a higher quality of life which we admit we live really well <laughs> yeah. out here it's wonderful you know? <laughs> it would I mean, be it would be cruel to bogart that, that <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? for sure for <laughs> sure and that's and so the idea is like how do we you know how do we find this this compromise this kind of sweet mm-hmm. spot where people can can keep some some private land but have access to some of that wilderness area yeah. as well um and and how do we incentivize to the landowners to stay and to look at wildlife management plans right land management plans easement initiatives and such mm-hmm. to keep uh nature intact and still be able to enjoy their lifestyle i mean right. we're not talking about first generation ranchers out here we're talking about fifth and sixth generation ranchers right. so it's you know it's one of these things where there's a there's a lot of pride and it isn't necessarily embedded in tradition as much as it is in a love of the lifestyle mm-hmm. and it's becoming with raising prices and such it's becoming harder and harder to sustain yeah and so the idea of vertical growth that land trust kind of plays into is how do we create some alternate revenue streams for folks to to stay and enjoy, but also share, mm-hmm. you know, the beauty and the wilderness and the wildlife and the birds and, and, uh, and have a better understanding of, um, a lot of what conservation goes into wildlife management. And so it's, it's, uh, it's neat. It's, uh, it's a very interesting platform and, and that's kind of where the mantra of this, I suppose, yeah. uh, comes from. It's born of that. Yeah. So the idea is essentially that, you know, people put their ranches on something like an Airbnb system and outdoor recreationists can, you know, go stay there and bird watch or rock climb or kayak or hunt or whatever they want to do. Fish. Want to There's do. so many, so many options. Do yeah. you find it difficult to convince landowners to take part in it? Or are they like, they're like here for it right off the bat? 
Well, you know, it, it really kind of depends. Um, and there's yeah. a, a couple different prongs. So the, the difference between consumptive and non-consumptive right. registration and all the permitting liability, all these sorts yeah. of things that yeah. go along with it. Um, and so some areas are obviously easier to evolve than others. And that's one of the great beauties of non-consumptive recreation is that mm-hmm. basically you just show up. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, right. it's part of the reason why I love birding, right? Birds are everywhere. Exactly. That's what's so cool about birding is it's everywhere. It's anywhere. Yeah. You have birds, you have wildlife, all these places. And um, really, all you have to do is just say, sure, you know, what are we going to do? Charge 10 bucks, charge 50 bucks, whatever the experience is. Yeah. Um, if you're cool with letting people visit and enjoy what you have, then um, then let's get you on land trust and people can do that. Yeah. And so so that's that's pretty much the idea behind it. And there, you know, it's anything from ranch experiences, but it was really cool because in, in meeting Nick and some of the staff, you know, it was pretty quick. There's a few board members who are into birds, wildlife, nature conservation. That's how I was actually introduced to it mm-hmm. was through a couple of councils and other organizations that I'm involved with. Um, and birding was like front and center. They're just like, we yeah. like this. This is great. It makes total sense. It's like the same areas, these natural areas that, um, you know, backcountry recreationists want to get to. That's where the birds are. So, um, so yeah, birding was, was one of the first activities that they really, you know, kind of committed to, to looking into and, and trying to develop for, for people to enjoy. Yeah, it's funny because this this process, you know, someone opening up their home or their property to have birders or whatever come on and do their thing is one that a lot of us who have traveled in the tropics and in, in the middle America, South America are super familiar with. Like so many of our best spots for birding are because someone had this idea and has the birds and is, you know, protecting their land so that people can come see it. It makes sense that we would transfer this idea to United States and Canada as well. A hundred percent. And even taking that further into the old world, you go to Africa, mm-hmm. that's where all that really kind of started. You start on these, you know, these big, huge private ranches that, that folks said, Hey, let's, let's have people come out and, uh, and recreate. And, and it's, it's really interesting how it's evolved there. And so I think ultimately, yeah. Um, giving landowners the opportunity to, and the platform, to mm-hmm. talk about and allow access and to, to generate a little, a little income and also to provide advice and tools to anything from, you know, government help subsidies, mitigation banks, like all of this yeah, sort of yeah. that goes into um, being a good, again, the idea of, is, you know, propping up the idea of stewardship, being a good steward of the land and, mm-hmm. and, um, and kind of addressing everything that goes into that, which you know, for, for farmers and ranchers these days, it's, it's tough. It's complicated. There's yeah. a lot to it. So um, it's really trying to provide tools all the way around to let yeah. people visit and enjoy, but also let those folks understand uh, everything they possibly can about land management. Do you think that the relative success of companies like Airbnb, like VRBO, stuff that you know people have heard of and maybe are familiar with and maybe have used you know, helps convince folks that this is a good way to use your land. Like the, it's, it's slightly different. It's a different sort of avenue, but the process, like the general idea is really similar and they can look at it and say, Hey, look, this was, this was a huge success. You know, we want to do it a slightly different version of it. Are you, are you up for that? I guess it makes it easier to explain <laughs> what, what, your, what your idea is. Absolutely. No, yeah. no, it is. Cause I mean, essentially, you know, with land trust, what you're booking is you're booking an experience. 
Right. Okay. Yeah. That's the well, difference. I mean, with like yeah. Airbnb, you know, you're booking your experiences, accommodation or whatever the case right, would right. be. It's um, like a reservation system for dinner, et cetera. But mm-hmm. what you're really booking is um, a half to multi-day experience. And it can be, like you said, anything from birding to rock climbing, to fishing, to camping with family, to horseback, mm-hmm. right? I mean, all sorts of things that so many of these amazing properties have inherent on them um and just making that available to uh to a larger audience and and it's essentially because a lot of this you know word of mouth maybe you know neighboring ranch other people know about this as Mm -hmm. montanans we kind of get a feel (laughs) for what's out there you know but but there's no really one-stop shop there's no platform where people could say hey i'm just going to enter in horseback camping family vacation what you know what do we got so yeah. the idea is to kind of kind of take it to that and of course it applies to here is you know birding in montana birding in yeah. arizona birding you know how do we get to um to some of these places and i think a, a big part of it too was the private experience right mm-hmm. so you know uh, in a perfect world would be able to go to all our favorite birding spots and maybe nobody's there. Maybe we have it. So, I mean, <laughs> right. It's the same. Birders are very sociable. Very, it's, it's, you know, a very sociable bunch of people. Everyone wants to talk about their sightings and, and it is, uh, I mean, there's a whole lifestyle to birding and, and birders yeah. and bird watching, but, um, but I think a lot of what people joy, um, both as intellectual and aesthetes and just as, you know, somebody wanting some downtime and the respite, that brought us to nature perhaps Mm -hmm. um, isn't having a private experience or having, you know, a place to yourself, even if it's just for half a day or a day or just you and your family, say you want to go birding, but you want to have a picnic. You want to have the family there, have the kids close by, but you don't want to have to deal with, with other folks. That, that was a big, um, a big motivating factor behind it as well is, is wanting to have um, a little exclusivity, inexpensively and on somewhere that's beautiful and, and ticks your boxes. So, yeah. you know, as the supply is growing and it's growing very quickly, thankfully, which is, which is super cool. Um, and it's starting in the West, but there's a bunch of properties listing out in Massachusetts, Maine, like oh, really? it's, oh, that's it's cool. going all over the place. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it, it'll be nice to be able to, to provide that, that f- for folks planning vacations or, or just wanting even like a, a new spot locally, that they can kind of return to and and can be their home away from home kind of backyard patch. I mean, whatever the the case or motive might be, mm-hmm. um, but to have that for for birders and outdoor recreationists, I think is um, is really nice. You you, ta- you said that it started two years ago. I imagine that the pandemic put <laughs> a lot of things started two years ago and had to be kind of be put on hold. Yes, um, correct. Yeah, you know, you're you're out in Montana. It's a part of the country that relies really heavily on on outdoor tourism, just kind of generally. Um, yes, now how did the, how did the pandemic affect all that and how has it responded, you know, as we sort of get to, ah, fingers crossed sort of towards, <laughs> towards the end, <laughs> towards the end. That's all I'll say. <laughs> it was, uh, well, yeah, not to, not to get into like specific COVID responses, which varied city to city yeah, for sure. in the area for yeah. sure. <laughs> um, as we know, it's still the wild west, but, um, but that being said, you know, it, it was a very interesting time because yeah. I think. You know, of course, at first it was shut down, you know, nobody was moving and it happened uh, in March, April when, you know, everybody starts to come to Montana to fly fish and then all your birders and wildlife folks start to show up kind of May, June. And, you know, I mean, we're kind of sliding into that season when tourism really ramps up. I mean, uh, the skiers have 
mostly kind of filtered out and snowshoers, cross country skiers, all this, everybody's sort of, um, packed up their winter wolf watching and, and uh, all the things that go on around Yellowstone where we live. Um, and then that happened. And so every, it was just, I think of course, across the planet, there was a collective, like <gasps> this yep. gas of like, what's this going to look like? You know, yeah. uh, what is it going to mean? And you're absolutely right. Um, so many of the, the people that live and work around Yellowstone are in, I mean, if you want to call it the service industry, the tourist industry, it's kind of all tied together, but mm-hmm. they're, um, you know, they're teachers, uh, they are workshoppers, they are wildlife photographers, they are guides, they are fly fishing, rafting, I mean, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they reckon that, you know, just people showing up to look in the wolves in Yellowstone uh, is, uh, you know, a $600,000 a wolf industry. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a huge huge thing. And so, um, you know, you have that come in and we all just thought, oh my gosh, this is terrible. And of course the park was closed until midsummer. But, uh, then something really surprising happened, uh, despite no international travel, no foreign visitors of which there are normally a million and a half to two. Yeah. Um, Yellowstone had the highest visitation record in history. The, the first the first summer of the pandemic 2020 by the end of the year they had beaten previous records by what a couple hundred thousand and then 2021 rolls in and yeah. still no foreign travelers yeah and visitation to Yellowstone beat previous records by over half a million visitors yeah I remember hearing about that you know I, out here we have Smoky Mountains which is famously one of the most visited if not the most visited national park property and um yeah, I we, my family and I went up there because we were driving through and we took the scenic route and uh, it was it was it was packed. It's absolutely yeah. packed. Yeah, uh, and it is always packed, but it was like really packed. You know how it is. You know how national yeah. park traffic is, and it's For um, sure. it it it's wild. And this was, I guess, this was like the second summer of the pandemic when we we learned what we learned a lot about COVID and how it's you know less of a threat outdoors, and so if you you know stay away from people and. You know, it, even then, it's hard to stay away from people. Like it was, it was, it was, it was, it was incredible. And I, and I, both as like, like kind of a, you know, positive thing. Like people are looking for outdoor activities to do, and that's always really exciting. Um, and also, my God, what are they going to do with all these people? <laughs> Well, that's a weird thing. We're just yeah. like, and it was, and it was literally, you know, so it, also simultaneously we have, you know, what they've dubbed what the great resignation. Right. So, <laughs> right. yeah. so we have this huge increase in demand. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 2019 record setting year, 2020 record setting year by, you know, half a million. And then 2022 even beat that year by another half a million. So you're, yeah. I mean, you're up by almost a million visitors within two years and very little workforce. Yes. Um, there is no increase in workforce per se. There's probably a slight decrease actually. And part of that was born of land prices soaring, rent yeah. prices going up, uh, prices of everything going up. And so a lot of folks that, you know, were able to survive on X wage, they had to leave or they had to yeah. find alternate means. And uh, Montana's always been kind of a a place for the the hardy. And most people have a few different irons in the fire and they have a few different businesses or a few different things that they do to be able to to live there because people 
tend to choose to live there. I mean, very few right. people are born there by, by uh, you know, just by population. It's such a low population. But a lot of the people that go, go there because they, they truly love it. Mm-hmm. And so they figure out ways to stay. But that became more difficult. And so it, it really landed our region in this bizarre sort of space where um, there are good high paying jobs available because now there is a huge, there's this insane demand, but, um, but there's almost barely the infrastructure to support it. So right. that's the classic problem with national parks just generally, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely. And now yeah. we have this exaggerated situation, but I think, um, and we'll see what this year brings, but it's, it's left a lot of room for people to become innovative. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, my partner included and myself included, you know, new business endeavors, um, and um and new partnerships with you know amazing people within the community and new ideas like like land trust really really taking off yeah um and then a lot of folks have kind of come together around their local initiatives um we have a new thing wild livelihoods which is a a coalition of local business owners to um to help deal with you know one of the big hot topic items in the region right now which is wolves um and the um the change in legislation that you know a lot of people are kind of quoting or dubbing the war on wolves but um but it's you know there's always been a small wolf wolf hunting allotment um but it changed drastically last year Hmm. um with uh, the former elections kind of putting folks in place and things changing, so to speak, without to get too far into it. But it is to yeah. say that, you know, um, a lot of people have come together in amazing ways and uh, in creative ways through this to to tell the story of, um, you know, Montanans, not only the wildlife, which is what we deal with mostly, um, birds, wildlife, et cetera, but, but also with community stuff. So it's been um, it's been scary. It's been a crazy time for the last couple yeah. of years, but, uh, but it's also been for people, I think, a uh, time of growth in a way. Um, yeah. You know, we've certainly seen these situations with, with parks and, and natural areas kind of bursting at the seams as people are kind of looking for, for more ways to, to get out and enjoy nature. Um, do you think that it is more important than ever now to kind of let people know that there are amazing places in that part of the country that are not national parks? It feels like land trust to be, a great way to do that because people, a lot of people come to, to that part of the country because, you know, Yellowstone, Tetons, Glacier National Park, they know those places are famous. They've got a hundred and have a hundred odd years of, you know, kind of institutional, the word I'm looking for inertia, like everyone knows about those things, but there's yeah. like so many other really cool natural areas out there. Letting people know that those are options as well. Seems like an opportunity to kind of ease the pressure on these super popular places like Yellowstone and, and Tetons and, and the other national parks in the area. Absolutely. No. And that's a very astute way to, to look at one of the, one of the goals as well is, is to, uh, it really is to, to not only relieve pressure, but yeah, to kind of take some of that stress and put it into other areas that are equally as enriching, right. and equally as fulfilling and satisfying. Um, and to, and to, so to speak, kind of spread the wealth, move the spending around for one, but mm-hmm. also move the experience into yeah. exclusive manners as well. And of course, the national parks are awesome. They really they're are. They're national parks for a reason. <laughs> they're exactly. preserved for a reason. Yeah. Super interesting places. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it's also, I mean, there's a lot to be gotten from, from seeing, you know, your first mountain plovers or your first yeah. long spurs on a ranch that is a sixth, fifth or sixth generation ranch. There's 
you know, people on horses in the background and you can stay at some of these places and you can wake up with the grouse and you can, mm-hmm. you know, do, it's, it's really neat. It's just a, it's kind of a different, um, it, it's a, it's different to what, to what you can find like inside Yellowstone per se. So yeah. specifically in Montana, a lot of these, you know, wonderful prairie habitats and really yeah. interesting, like, you know, back mountain habitats, uh, a lot of that's private. Um, mm-hmm. or there's no accommodations, nowhere to stay that's anywhere public. Um, and so it's, it's neat that, you know, land trust can now kind of fill that gap and provide some additional infrastructure for people that would, uh, seek out and enjoy those sort of experiences. Yeah. Is there any, um, is there any place that you've seen on the land trust site that just really seems like a, like an amazing way of, of using a, a property? Yeah, absolutely. There's actually a relatively recently listed property um, in the Little Belts, Little Bell Cattle Company. But um, yeah, they've they've sort of they've kind of relatively recently come into to Montana again for second generations. But but um, they've got this really cool property that they very quickly went out and mapped out all the grass legs for starters okay and that's nice their yeah. property abuts <laughs> national forest that you get all these really cool you know pine species anything from pine grosbeaks beaks up high to you know dusky grouse right in the ravines and this kind of stuff but they've got the sage grouse and the sharp-tailed grouse lex right there they've got mountain plovers breeding long spurs all this and then you can literally like behind some of the housing just hike right up into the forest and so it's it's cool i mean they're they're and it's there are several of those properties that really have these neat again, need experiences that the landowners really like rapaciously just dove in and said, we want to, we want to map out where all the wildlife and the birds are. And they're already wildlife and bird enthusiasts. And um, they did that without any coaching or prompting. Yeah, that's nice. They were just like, oh yeah, we happen to know where all all (laughs) this is just like, wow, cool. And so it's, it's really neat to, to discover, um, to discover, well, I mean, those people and, and the cool thing about these is, you know, they're building a legacy. Um, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a family, you know, and their kids are part of it. And, and then the grandkids are going to be part of it. And it's really, you know, the idea of kind of um, supporting private landowners that have that same vision and yeah. respect and love for, for the wildlife and the birds is, uh, is really cool. Yeah, I imagine that legacy issue is such a huge part of it too, because you, over the last decade or so, you've read a ton of articles about how you know farming is a dying is a dying industry. Family farms are a dying industry, I should say, um, and so so many farmers feel as though they have a like they have no other choice but to sell their property off to some big agri concern, and obviously for the environmental impact of that is is almost wholly negative, and so imagine you know having the opportunity to do something different with this property that you've put your family's sweat, blood and tears into for generations. I imagine that's like got to mean a lot. It's like almost like a lifeline in some extent. It it is. And I mean, I think it's, it's, it's going to, it's forming into like a, a community and a culture of landowners who are participating Mm -hmm. in this in and of itself. And again, like, you know, being able to, you know, to have those sort of discussions and forums where you can talk pretty freely about, you know, the woes and the benefits and all these things, because it's really, you know, again, the idea is to provide tools and advice to landowners that is not just giving them alternate revenue streams through tourism, but, but also talking about, well, let's figure out what kind of mitigations, you know, a lot you can do here if you make these changes and do this. So, So again, it's really just, um, trying to trying to educate and and talk together and have open discussions about um the ways to really maximize again it's like this idea of what is the economy of ecology 
look yeah. like? Like, how do you how do you balance that out? Because everybody has to live and they have to eat. And how mm-hmm. can we best balance that? And so I think it's really cool because it's kind of turning into evolving into this form, this platform where even the the landowners can can chat with each other and chat with, yeah you know with with people in the company and and um and hopefully uh swap ideas and and figure out more ways to do it while um generating an income off of people just coming and enjoying what they have chosen to to be able to live every day you know so it's yeah. it's really uh it's pretty special of course rowan once again he's involved in so many things in Montana. Um, but if you want to want to check out the land trust stuff, that's at landtrust.com. Uh, please, please check that out. If you're looking to go somewhere this summer, there, are, you know, you're in the neighborhood already. You go into Yellowstone, you hit a land trust place on the way, on the way out. Um, thank you so much, uh, Forrest. It was, gr- it was great to talk to you again and good nice luck this summer. And it looks like it's going to be a busy one for, for all y'all up there. <laughs> going to be big, going to be big. Yeah. And, and thank you. And thanks for making the time. It's nice to talk to you, baby. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are a lot of benefits like goodwill to help support what we're doing here, but also you get magazines, discounts, partners, opportunities to travel with us. Get information at aba.org slash join. I make some special shout outs this week to Josh and Sarah Frederick of Lexington, Kentucky and Rosemary Meredith and family of Hodgkinville, Kentucky, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you and welcome to the ABA. Tactical production is by John Lowry, whose idea of March Madness is that long lingering period when the weather starts to turn, but bird migration is still many weeks away. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who think that the disparity in members of the Alaudity family between the new and the old world constitutes some sort of Lark's Madness. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association, but on Twitter as ABA. I don't know about you, but my bracket is totally busted this week. I had Elegant going way farther. Least's run totally surprised me. And who do Black Skimmer would even make the field? This is the absolute last time I fill out a bracket for the NCABA tournament. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week. <laughs>